If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter, we're going to be looking this morning at the first section of what has been called Jesus' Upper Room Discourse in verses 31 to 35. Next week we'll complete chapter 13 with Peter's uh, famous denial. And then we will spend just two weeks this year, the 17th and the 24th, with some texts around the Christmas season. We'll look at a passage from 1 Peter and a passage from Matthew 1. And then we will return back to the Gospel of John in John 14 and carry on in our study of John. Our text this morning is a short one, I think a familiar one, but a very important one. John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Beginning at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would show us his love for us, that you would show us what he has done to redeem us, and that having seen that, we would with great thanksgiving serve you with gladness and joy. This we pray in Christ's precious name, amen. The Christian life is begun by the work of Jesus on the cross. And His work makes all the difference in how a believer lives. Now that Judas has left from the Last Supper, Jesus begins His final teaching to the disciples. He's going to teach them and us about the importance of love. Love is central to our lives. And Jesus has given us a commandment, a new commandment, to love one another. In this first instruction from our Savior, we will see three things. 
First, we will see God glorified by love. Second, we will see His people united by love. And then third, an application of these principles that we are marked by love. Glorified by love, united by love, and marked by love. Let's begin then by looking at verse 31 and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God the Father. I want you to remember the scene where we are. Judas has just left into the night to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows that his time with the disciples will be short and that they will be challenged by the events to come. And so as he gives this upper room discourse, teaching on the most important topics for the disciples and for the building of the church, he begins with the most important theme. The glory of God. You can almost imagine the scene. Now that Judas has left, the disciples are all of one heart and one mind. And Jesus begins with what is of first importance. Now it shouldn't surprise us that the glory of God is what is of first importance. We're good Presbyterians here. And so if I were to ask you, what is man's chief end? You would respond to me to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is your chief end. That is what all people, whether Presbyterians or not, were created to do. All creation is made to glorify God. And so this is also very timely for us because it relates directly to what is about to happen. Jesus is going to the cross. And we can see this from the very first word that Jesus uses. He focuses on the cross. In verse 31, our Lord says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. To the human ear, This sounds strange. There's a small group of men hidden away. There are enemies on every side. There is confusion about where Judas has gone. There is confusion about someone who will betray the Lord. But this sound that is strange is only strange because the disciples do not understand the significance of the cross. Clearly, Jesus is showing them that the cross is the greatest expression of His glory. That is why right now, He is glorified. Not later, not at some time in the future, but now. And we have to remember to the world how shameful the cross was. The cross was not just a defeat. It was not just a punishment for a criminal. It was the worst of things that could happen to someone. No criminal would have ever wanted or treated this punishment lightly. We often can see in our news, someone is convicted. The judge bangs the gavel and sentences them to three years or five years or ten years in prison. And the response 
of the accused is to say something like, I could do that time standing on my head. Or even those who are given the death penalty. They can mock and joke about it and say, well, I can tell you what I'm going to have for my last meal. I'm not afraid of no injection. But you see, criminals never would say that about the cross. It was not only the most painful death that a criminal could experience, it was shameful and mocking. You didn't receive this punishment in a room somewhere hidden away. No, you were on display for the entire community. Your shame was put on display. You were mocked as the worst of criminals. Someone who wasn't worthy of a proper burial or a proper execution. It was a horror of horrors. But Jesus not only embraces the cross... He glorifies in it. He exalts in it. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And he once again intentionally uses this term. We've seen over and over again this title in John's Gospel, the Son of Man. And you will recall that the Son of Man is a term of authority, a term of honor. It has glory built into it. The Son of Man is the one who comes on the clouds, who has authority over all things, who has all things committed to Him. And Jesus is telling us that the Son of Man is glorified now in the cross. But how is the cross glorious? This is not Jesus going down in a blaze of glory. That's how Modern society would view this. A glorious death would be one in which you take out a whole bunch of your other enemies. A way in which you can get back at the people who are killing you. And then therefore, you go down in a blaze of glory, we call it. That's not what Jesus is doing. Neither intending nor will occur. The glory of the cross is seen in what it accomplished. The reversal of the curse of sin. Now stop and think for a moment about your life. Think about the sin that dogs at your heels, that nags at your conscience, that you long to be free from, that gets you into trouble, that breaks up relationships, that causes you sleepless nights. Jesus died to reverse that curse. But then not just for you. But for every sinner who repents and believes. Over thousands and thousands of years, he's reversing the effect of sin. Sin that has claimed its billions in deaths. The power of the cross does away with sin. The glory is also seen not just in the reversal of the curse, but it's seen in the defeat of our enemy, the devil. You know, it's it's interesting. We have this phenomenon as we grow. When we are younger, and I'm sure parents can testify to this for their younger children. You put your children to bed and they make you check under the bed for monsters. And you dutifully do that and they say, no, no, you got to check the closet too. Turn on the closet light. I want to make sure there's only sweaters and shirts and pants in there. 
And you open up the closet and you move the clothes and you say, look, there's nothing. It's safe. Go to bed. And you shut off the light and you leave and you think to yourself, how could that possibly be? But yet as we grow as adults, we tend to view the devil that way. As if somehow we can't escape from him. As if he has authority over our lives. As if even though we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we won't be able to escape his clutches. We won't be able to be relieved of his temptations. That we have no hope because the devil's hiding around every single corner. I want to tell you that that's just as ridiculous as looking for monsters under the bed. Jesus Christ through the cross has undone the power of the devil. The Bible tells us that he who had the power of death no longer has any power because of the cross. And the glory of the cross is seen in that it is the central moment in all of history. Even today, right now, it is the most important moment in all of human history. Jesus is glorified in the cross. But it's not just that Jesus is glorified in the cross. The Father is glorified also. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. The cross glorifies God the Father because it reveals the nature and the wisdom of God. It showed the perfect justice of God. That God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. Have you ever wondered, how was Abraham saved? How was Moses saved? Or David? These men were great sinners. Did God really mean what he said about sin? Was he really opposed to sin? Well, the cross answers that. Because you see, the cross shows that they were saved in the same way that we are saved. That is, by believing in one who took their place. The Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us that God does indeed take sin seriously. That he is just. That he is holy. That he doesn't find shortcuts. That there's no thread that's hanging. That there's nothing that will be found out and everything upturned. No, Jesus begins here by calling you to embrace the cross because it's glorious. It may be shameful and a humiliation to the world, but the reality is there has never been a better example of the glory of God. Revealed in the cross is the solution to your great problem. Jesus is in control at the cross. You can look to him and be saved. The cross also glorifies God by putting his love on display. In verse 32 we read, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And as we look at that verse, our first thought is, that's a lot of hymns. That's a lot of himself. Who's John talking about? Is he talking about the Father? Or is he talking about the Son? And the answer is yes. You see, we've seen this before. Verse 32 is another one of these verses that show the reality and the truth of the Trinity. 
that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are one. And their work is so intertwined that it cannot be separated. That the glory of the cross brings glory to Jesus, brings glory to the Father, and brings glory to the Spirit. You cannot separate them out. John does this over and over for us. So I want to encourage you, the next time someone comes up to you and says, well, I don't believe there's any Trinity in the Bible, say to them, have you looked at John 13, 32? You'll send them for a little bit of a loop. But you see what I'm saying here. The unity of the Trinity is seen here. There is no discord. There is complete harmony. We have a saying for that. We call it singing off the same sheet of music. And you know what that's like. We've just done that earlier. But could you imagine if we began our service and I said, I want the folks over here to sing joy to the world. And I want the folks over here to sing angels from the realms of glory. And you in the back sing Silent Night. Would we have a perfect, wonderful blend and melody of three hymns? No, it would be a disaster. And you see, sometimes that's how people look at God, the Trinity, as if somehow the Father is against the Son, and the Father is trying to bribe the, the Son is trying to bribe the Father, and the Spirit is doing things that He wouldn't do otherwise. When what we see here is, is that the cross is for the glory of God, and it shows the love of God. The Father is glorified in the Son, and the Son is glorified in the Father. And to understand that, we need to look at the purpose of the cross. Now we can understand theologically the problem of sin, the problem of death, the problem of judgment, and desire a solution. We can even understand and see the wrath of God against sin. We could even know that the only hope for sinners is to have someone else pay the debt of their sin. But only the love of God explains why God would offer His Son to die for our sins. This is the wonder of, for God so loved the world. God knew that only by the death of the Son could sin be forgiven, fellowship restored, and a people brought together. And so God acted at incredible cost. This is not just a man who suffered and died. It is God himself. Can you wrap your mind around that? That God suffered and died to redeem you from your sin. It is at the cross that the mercy and grace of God show his love. J.C. Rao puts it well, this interaction between the Father and the Son. He says, The Son shows the world by His death how holy and just is the Father and how He hates sin. The Father shows the world by raising and exalting the Son to glory how He delights in the redemption for sinners which the Son has accomplished. It is the Father's love that brought about the cross. God is faithful. His love is strong. Every promise that God has made 
is true in Christ. From the first promise in the Garden of Eden, to all of the promises to Abraham, to his promises to David, to his promises to you and to me. This is why the Apostle Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 1, For all the promises of God find their yes. Old translation, find their amen in Christ. That is why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. The love of God is on display in the cross to the glory of God. Jesus then transitions to a second subject. Verse 33 is a transition from one to another. Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus is accomplishing two things here. He is using family language. He calls his disciples little children. Now, this is not a diminutive term. This is not because he's viewing them as unimportant. This is family language. You know this because you use similar language in your family. Parents call their children bud or buddy or dear or something to that effect. And I can testify as a 54-year-old that when you grow up into an adult, you're still called buddy or bud or dear. Because it's not diminutive. It's endearing. It's about the relationship that you have. And it's interesting that this is the only place in the Bible that Jesus uses this term for them. He wants to remind them that the glorious work of the cross has a tangible effect. They are loved. And he reminds them that he is going away and that they cannot come with him. Now, why is this important? I think there's the obvious. They had relied on Jesus completely. He was their teacher, their leader. He was the one who cared for them. There's several humorous scenes in the gospel where they don't even know how to get dinner without him. They're completely dependent on Jesus. And at the same time, there is no better example of love in the world than Jesus. And all of this would change at the cross. They would no longer have Jesus with them. Jesus would no longer walk among people and teach and show them what real love is. So how would the disciples remain encouraged? How would the world know about love? Jesus brings them close to himself and he says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This command is so simple. But it's still so profound. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says this command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. 
This is not complex. There aren't reams of knowledge to memorize. There aren't complex tasks to accomplish. This is a simple, direct command that is profoundly significant. But the question comes, how is this a new commandment? Is this possibly the first time that God's people have been called to love? And it certainly is not, obviously, because Jesus has told us that there are two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He tells us that in Mark 12. Paul understands this in Galatians 5. He says the whole of the Old Testament is filled up in this. He says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is not new. Jesus and Paul were not making this up out of whole cloth. They're actually thinking about and citing Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, this is hidden away in here because I know Leviticus is typically the place where annual daily Bible reading plans go to die. Because you're reading about beards and clothing and sacrifices and it's... But there are gems like 1918 in Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is citing this. Now John is going to take this command and write almost a whole commentary on it in 1 John. And he acknowledges that the commandment is old and it's new. He puts it this way in 1 John 2. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. An old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing. And we read that and we say, John, make up your mind. Is it old? Is it new? So what is John saying there? What is Jesus saying here? It is new, not that it has never been given before, but that it has a new object. The Old Testament command from Leviticus 19 is focused on Israel and the Jews. You will remember that that verse talks about being not holding a grudge against the sons of your own people. And so for the Jews, that meant they had to love other Jews, but they were free to hate everybody else. And boy, did they. They hated the Samaritans. They hated the Syrians. They hated the Greeks. They hated the Romans. They were known as haters of people, actually, by historians of the day, because they hated everyone other than Jews. That's why Gentiles were despised by them. They wouldn't even eat with them. And what you need to realize is, this is going to be hard for you to believe, is that even in the world of Twitter and Facebook and news channels, our world is far less divided than the world of Jesus' day. You know, in many languages of the day, the word for stranger and enemy was the same word. People were divided by language, and they couldn't pop up Google Translate. They didn't have textbooks to learn other languages. 
Those who were strangers or not from their tribe were viewed with fear and suspicion and loathing. People were separated by gender. Men and women were separated all the time in so many different ways. They were separated by location. No one went from one place to another place. But now Jesus is calling his disciples to love with a radical broadness. That's new. Love not just those who are like you. Love not just those whom you want to love. This love is for all. The one another is very broad. (coughs) And this is a command for you. If you think about how broad the offer of salvation is, you must see how broad this command is. Because they are to love one another. If the gospel is for everyone on the face of the earth, then this command is for everyone on the face of the earth. This is the reason why there is no place for hatred and prejudice. This is why we must make an effort to to reach everyone around us. And let me say, the Lord has given you a unique opportunity in Houston. You know, a century ago, or two centuries ago, if you had said to yourself, I want to bring the gospel to the people of China, you would have left everything behind, your family, your goods, everything, and gotten on a boat and sailed away with your own coffin, because you knew you were never coming back, for months. You know what you have to do today? You have to walk down the street. Because in Houston, your neighbor or your two doors down neighbor is from China, or from Japan, or from India, or from Nigeria, or from Venezuela, or from Mexico. Think of the opportunity the Lord has given to you in his providence to be here and to share the gospel with people from Europe, with people from Africa, with people from Asia, all over the world. The breadth of his command is right at your fingertips to love one another. But the command is also new, not just because of its breadth, but because of its depth also. Jesus is not only calling us to love all sorts of people who aren't like us. He's calling us to love people with an entirely different measure. Look with me at verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Stop and listen to that. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, if we were to think about how we were to love one another, we might come up with a list. Well, we'll take them some food. We'll help around their house. We'll write an encouraging note. We come up with a whole list of things. And then maybe we'd go to the next level and say, I'm going to think about all the things that I love. And then I'm going to show that to someone else. That's good. But Jesus goes far beyond that. The standard is to love the way that Jesus loved. This kind of love is not vague. It's not a good feeling. It is sacrificial, costly love. We are called to love each other in the way that Jesus loves us. 
And that doesn't mean that we are all called to die for a fellow believer. But it has to at least mean putting others before yourself. Does that sound familiar? That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, have the mind of Christ. Think of others more highly than yourself. That kind of sacrifice is what Jesus is calling us to now. Do you wonder what this kind of love would look like? Well, thankfully, we have an example for this. One might even say a list. It's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Yes, I know that's the wedding chapter. But that's really not what that's about. It's not about romantic wedding love. There's an application to weddings because husbands and wives are to live sacrificially for each other. But primarily, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about some generic, amorphous idea of love. It's about Jesus. So I want to encourage you today to go through and read 1 Corinthians 13, but do a little bit of editing for me. Instead of reading, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy and boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Read, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy and boast. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices in the truth. And then after that has hit you, do one more bit of editing. Take your name and put it into 1 Corinthians 13. That you are not envying. That you are not boasting. That you are not arrogant. That you are patient. That you bear all things. That you believe all things. That's what that text is about. It's a description of the love of Christ. And if we are to love as Jesus has loved, we must emulate that. Now, how could we possibly obey that command? It seems so far beyond us. I look at that list, and I'm tripped up on love is patient. I guess it's over. You don't believe me? Ask my wife. Forget it. But the bad news is you can't obey this command on your own. But the good news is Jesus doesn't expect you to. His death and resurrection have changed everything, including you. This kind of love is supernatural. It comes from Jesus. And Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to empower you with this kind of love. We're going to see this in three chapters to come. That Jesus goes on and on about the Holy Spirit coming. Why is that so important? Because of this. Only by the power of the Spirit can you obey this command. And when you do, the power of God is on display through this love. And that brings us to our final application. Jesus tells us that there is an important practical purpose for this command. It's in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is when we obey Jesus' command that others know we are his disciples. And this is a stunning new priority. Now again, remember the context. Jesus is about to go to the cross. 
He will make atonement for sin, but he will also be resurrected and ascend into heaven. And the disciples will remain. They are going to carry the mission forward. They are the ones who will tell others about Jesus. And so how will others know who Jesus is? How will they know the difference that he makes? How will they know that we are followers of Christ? Now, this is a crucial question for us today. I think for too many of us, we think the answer is we slap a fish on the back of our car. Or we wear a cross around our neck. Or have some other tangible sign that we're followers of Jesus. Or we could be tempted to think it's our superior knowledge of theology and God's truth. When people see that we understand things better, they'll know we're followers of Jesus. After all, our worldview is better, isn't it? Or we might again think that it's through our acts of mercy and charity in the world. It's by what we do, the kindnesses we show, the money we give. But Jesus says that something else is the fundamental sign of discipleship. Love for each other. This love shows our relationship with each other. It shows that we have been bought and redeemed by Jesus. It shows that we are united together. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, well, I don't know, Pastor, if I can have that kind of love. There are some people that, you know, they're just a little bit off in the church. And we don't, we don't rub right. Well, praise be to the Lord that they and you will have your sin completely obliterated when you're glorified. But let me give you some encouragement. If you think it's a long time to have to sit through a whole worship service next to someone, imagine the fact that you're going to be spending eternity with them. So you better start practicing now. And you don't have any excuses. Because Jesus said, we are to love as he loved. And who did Jesus love? We just saw last week, Jesus loved Judas. He gave him opportunity to repent. Jesus loved people who misunderstood him. He loved Peter. And Peter's about to deny him. We are called to love like Jesus. And when we love, we also mark ourselves and display the relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son. And this is powerful. Don't downplay love. Don't try to be thinking of all the legislation that you could pass or all the conferences you could hold or all the things you could memorize in order to improve the world and show the world that we're Christians. Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples when you love one another. And there's specific reference here to the church. You know, one commentator puts it this way. It's not as if we are called not to love the world. Because we are to bring them the gospel. But we're called particularly to love 
the brethren. Those who are redeemed. Our family. Jesus has given us a new commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not just a good thing. It is a directive from our God and King. Jesus redeemed us to be His people by the shedding of His own blood. In doing that, He was glorified and the Father was glorified. And now we are to follow Him. We are to follow Him in a way that others will know we belong to Jesus. And Jesus tells you directly that that way is the way of love. We are to love one another. Just as Jesus loved us. That is our calling. Let's pray.